Lock the doors! Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week has been a big week for Brexit votes. Order! Order! On Tuesday, January 15th, Theresa May suffered the worst defeat on record in the House of Commons as her Brexit plan was soundly rejected. The eyes to the right, 202. The nose to the left, 432. So the nose have it, the nose have it. Unlock! For listeners who haven't been following this super closely, let's quickly list what this deal, the one that Parliament rejected, included. That plan took the form of a 600-page and legally binding withdrawal agreement detailing how the UK will leave the EU. It also included a vague and non-binding agreement for what the UK's relationship with the EU would be after the exit. The plan also included a transition period, lasting up until 2020, when the UK would have to follow EU rules but not be part of its institutions. It also includes an insurance policy, or the backstop, and that's the guarantee that whatever happens, there will be no hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And finally, there's a bill of around £39 billion. After that deal was rejected, Theresa May faced a vote of no confidence, which she won. The eyes to the right, 306. The nose to the left, 325. That means her government goes on to live another day. Brexit, it's complicated. In this episode, we have three guests. Sam Lowe from the Centre for European Reform in London, Meredith Crowley from the University of Cambridge, and Kyle Hanley from the University of Michigan. First up is Sam to tell us about what has been happening and what's next. Sam, hi. Hello. You've been following this pretty closely. Was there anything surprising about the events of last week? I think it was not surprising that Theresa May lost the vote, but perhaps the magnitude of the loss was something that did catch people by surprise because we're talking about numbers that we haven't really seen before in terms of parliamentarians who voted against her deal. And and the, the difficulty is that after all of that, we still are really in the same place we were before, where there's three options on the table. Either we have no deal with the EU at all and crash out in March, or we leave with a deal, probably one that looks substantially like the one the parliamentarians just voted down, or we call Brexit off. Okay, so so on those on those deals, just just focusing for now on the deal that Theresa May had proposed, to remind listeners, why do Brexiteers hate that deal? Well, <laughs> why 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 do Brexiteers hate that deal? Why does everyone seem to hate the deal? It's probably probably the bigger question and 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 it's the answer is it depends who you ask. Some people hate it because of the backstop for Northern Ireland, the insurance policy that would ensure no hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland under any circumstance because they feel it's something that we couldn't escape, that it would trap Britain into a close relationship with the EU forever and for people who want a freewheeling, buccaneering Britain that can sign trade deals with the rest of the world, they see that as a concession too far. But some other people hate it because of the bill. They don't feel that they're getting much for their money. Some other people hate it because they feel that the political declaration on the future relationship, which is the non-legally binding document that accompanies the withdrawal agreement, does not spell out 
sufficiently enough what the future relationship should look like. It's too ambiguous, it's too vague. Some people want it to spell out a, a close relationship with the EU, some want it to spell out arm's length relationship with the EU for different reasons. And then also, why did Labour oppose it? You know, it's because they're, so Labour being the opposition party, it's because they want to topple the government. They're the opposition, that's what they, want, that's what they do. And as it stands, they feel that they can oppose the deal on the table without at the moment risking no deal because there's still a couple of months to go before the end of the Article 50 process in March. So you said that almost everybody hates this deal. So why do the Remainers, the folks that actually want to stay in the EU, why do they hate this deal? Well, well the Remainers hate the deal because it means we, we leave the EU. They don't want to leave. They want to stay. They still see that there's a route towards staying. They think that we could either have a second referendum or that the UK could unilaterally revoke Article 50, so exit the process by which we leave. And they think there's still time left to build up the public support to achieve this. So at this moment in time, they're not going to sign up to anything that sees the UK bind itself to exiting. You mentioned that any different withdrawal agreement might look substantially like the one that's already on the table. What might even small tweaks look like? Could Theresa May do any better? My feeling on this is Theresa May has probably done as well as she could, given the constraints both within the country and within the UK, and also the constraints she faces that when she comes up against the EU's red lines. But is it possible to tweak it? Maybe. I mean, we can't rule anything out. Neither the EU or the UK wants no deal. So the EU might be willing to make some concessions if they feel that it would help Theresa May get a consensus within the UK. At the moment, it's not clear what that will be. So the EU is not going to budge at the moment. So, But what could they look like? I think with the withdrawal agreement itself, it's difficult to see what the changes could be. Potentially, the Northern Irish backstop, which now has an all-UK component, which would mean the UK uh, as a whole, so not just Northern Ireland, would remain in a customs union with the EU for the duration of the backstop. You could see that being removed and it reverting to the EU's preferred model of it being entirely Northern Ireland-specific. But why would that help Theresa May? It's difficult to see why she'd ask for that. She'd, it would cause more problems, maybe, with the... Democratic Unionist Party, which is the Northern Irish party that props up her government at the moment and would also cause problems within her own party. The, the area where there is room for change is probably the political declaration on the future relationship in that because it's not legally binding, the EU has more flexibility here. And if she was able to articulate a vision for the UK that could win over a majority in Parliament and particularly one for probably the only one on the table that could do that would be for a softer landing... So a, a closer relationship with the EU, uh, something that looks a bit like Norway's relationship with the EU, then perhaps the EU would be willing to rewrite the political declaration to accommodate that. So we will see how this plays out in the coming months. Which of Theresa May's red lines would a Norway deal violate? Freedom of movement. Uh, so for specifically free movement of labour. And this has been the one red line, the one red line of Theresa May's that's really held throughout this whole process in that we've actually seen her row back on quite a few of them, including uh, the role of the European Court of Justice in different areas. But this is something she believes. She believes that the vote for Brexit in the UK was explicitly a vote against free movement of people. And that's the one that would need to change in order for the UK to enter into a Norway-style relationship to remain a component part of the EU single market. So at this stage, can the UK just change its mind and remain? 
It's possible that the UK could change its mind and remain. I, I, I personally don't think it's probable at this moment in time in that I don't see how we get there, in that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, has ruled out a second referendum and said that he thinks Brexit should continue to go ahead. The government thinks that, and probably a majority in Parliament still think that Brexit should happen. But the issue we have is that whilst everyone, the majority in Parliament probably thinks Brexit should happen, there's no consensus on how it should happen. And the issue we have there is that whilst Parliament uh, just recently voted in a way that suggested that it does not want no deal, no deal is the default option until it can come up with a plan that is palatable to the EU. And we just don't seem to be at that stage yet and the clock is running down. What do you think the chances of a no deal are? <laughs> I really I really struggle to put numbers on things because uh, uh, when it comes to guessing what and also struggle to guess what will happen because it's been such a roller coaster ride. I think no deal remains possible. It's the default option. If the UK and the EU fail to come to an agreement and the UK doesn't rescind article 50, then no deal happens. It's the default. So in April next year we'll have exited the EU without any arrangements in place, which would be very disruptive in the short term and in the long run would probably quite significantly hit the UK's growth rate and is an outcome that I don't think anyone wants, but we could just fall into due to complacency and a failure to find consensus. So just to remind listeners, one thing that would happen in the event of no deal is both the UK and the European Union would, under WTO rules at least, have to start treating each other just like the EU treats all of the countries out there with which it doesn't have a free trade agreement with. So it would have to stop offering zero tariffs toward each other and all of a sudden increase tariffs to the MFN level, the most favored nation level, at least in terms of tariffs. I, I think that's right. But I, but I would emphasize that whilst tariffs would become an issue in a no Brexit scenario when we're we're trading with the when the UK is trading with the EU on most favoured nation terms. Actually, in terms of the immediate disruption, tariffs isn't the concern. We're actually thinking about the other friction that you find at the border. So, to give an example, when you import meat into the EU from any third country with which it doesn't have a deep enough preferential relationship, all products of animal origin have to enter the EU via a veterinary border inspection post where they are subject to 100% document checks, 100% identity checks, and about 50%, up to 50% subject to physical inspections. And that's something that just doesn't happen on trade between the UK and the EU currently. Calais and the Eurotunnel, which is the route by which the UK sends most of its products of animal origin to the rest of the EU, don't have the facilities to deal with this at the moment. How is that dealt with on day one? I think in the short term, you can have emergency measures that streamline some of this, that wave some things through. But over time, that's going to develop and cause quite significant friction that from day one and onwards will prevent, in this example, say a lamb exporter from Wales, selling and servicing its consumers in the EU. Sam, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I'll say it once more, as many as well have been say aye. Aye. Of the country now. There's a lot of uncertainty around. And, and this all begs the question, what is the economic impact of this uncertainty? Has it started to show up? And, and if so, where? To answer that, we brought in two more experts. Each has been tracking this independently, but in different ways. One has been looking at British firms and what they're doing. The other has been looking at British trade. First up, we have Meredith Crowley at the University of Cambridge. 
Loyal Trade Talks listeners will remember Meredith from episode 18 on Brexit and impact assessments. Meredith, in your paper looking at the impact of all this Brexit uncertainty, who are you tracking? So my analysis looks at British firms that export to the United Kingdom. Every year, we have about 20,000 large British firms exporting things to the EU. And when we look at the number of firms and products, we've got about 350 to 400,000 firm products being exported each year to the European Union. So those are the firms we're looking at. So the question we ask in the paper is we know that every period, many firms enter into a market and many firms exit. And so on average, in between the UK and the European Union, we have about 100,000 new firms and products entering and about 85,000 firms and products exiting. And so what we ask is, in June of 2016, when the British public voted to leave the European Union, we say, well, there's no change in actual trade policy between the European Union and the United Kingdom. But if you're a British exporter, you might be worried about whether or not trade policy is going to stay the same a year from now, two years from now. And so what we look at is we expect that firms saw an increase in uncertainty about the future of the trading relationship in the second half of 2016. And our question is, if you're not yet exporting to the European Union, did you become more uncertain and did this lead you to not enter the market in the first place? So we look at all of these different firms and we look at their entry and exit patterns. So you're going to be looking at British firms comparing their exporting behavior end of 2015, compare that to after the referendum vote of June 2016. What do you find? So what we find is for all of these British firms selling different products, some of them are exporting things, say, in transportation or machinery, and they actually would face very high tariffs if Britain left the European Union without a deal. So the tariffs could be over 15%, over 10%. And we find that for firms operating in these categories of products that would face high tariffs, there's a decline in their entry and there's an increase in exit by firms in those sectors. We also find if you're in a sector where there really wasn't a change in the tariff or after Britain leaves the European Union, the tariff won't increase because the European Union is currently charging a zero tariff on everything from everyone, we find that those sectors, we don't see much change. How big were these effects? So these effects were relatively modest, but not trivial. So we find about a decline in the entry rate of UK firms going to the European Union of about 5%. And we find an increase in exit of about 6%. When we look at what the average exporter sells in a particular period, and we value up all of these missing exporters, those that never entered, and those that were sort of induced to exit, the total loss is about 3 billion British pounds sterling. And so that's only about 2% of the total value of British exports to the European Union in a given year. So it's moderate, but one of the, I think, a deeper concern we have is in a dynamic and healthy economy, we always know that there are firms entering and exiting. And as we have this decline in entry, essentially we're looking at sort of losses into the future. Because as soon as this sort of slows down and shuts down, we're losing that competition and that pressure that firms face in different countries. And so this can sort of lead to a, a low-level gradual depression of activity that could be harmful in the long run. 
And all of this stuff is happening even though no tariffs have actually changed yet. Yes, this was all happening in the second half of 2016, well in advance of any actual change in policy. And just to check, what fraction of UK exports are covered in this? Because you you don't cover services, do you? No, this is only an analysis of goods. So we're leaving out all sectors on services. And the other thing is this analysis only looks at uncertainty associated with tariffs. So there are some sectors of the British economy, say pharmaceuticals, where the market in the European Union is relatively open in terms of tariffs. However, pharmaceuticals are very heavily regulated market. And so when there's a lot of, there's a great deal of uncertainty about how British-produced drugs will be treated in the European Union, and until these sort of high-quality British drugs are guaranteed, you know, some access for sale because they'll be able to prove they can satisfy regulatory differences or regulatory requirements, there could be other forms of uncertainty that are impacting firms, and that's not something our analysis picks up. Meredith, thank you very much. Okay. Brilliant, guys. Next up, we have Kyle Handley at the University of Michigan. Kyle has also been looking at this question of Brexit uncertainty, but from a slightly different angle. Kyle, who exactly is it that you're tracking in your paper? So the question we try to answer in our research is, how much did Brexit uncertainty reduce trade between the UK and the EU prior to the referendum vote? So you're going to look at the impact of this Brexit uncertainty even before the referendum vote of June 23rd, 2016, What's your measure of uncertainty associated with Brexit? So the measure of uncertainty that we use is the probability that the Leave vote would win the referendum. And we get that by using prediction markets, which are financial contracts that are traded on exchanges. And that gives us kind of a proxy for how likely this event was. And we use that to get variation over time prior to the referendum vote. And then... The way we try to estimate how big of a deal this, this was is by using differential exposure to high tariffs if the ultimate outcome is a no-deal Brexit, where the United Kingdom and the EU go back to trading on WTO terms and higher most favored nation tariffs. So having been in the UK before the vote, for a long time it did seem like Brexit was unlikely. How much is this measure really picking up the probability of Brexit? In the data that we use, we think there's meaningful changes in the probability of Brexit around different political and legislative events. When the bill is actually passed to have a referendum, we see this probability track up. When they agree on the wording, the probability changes. When the campaigns actually start around March or April of 2016, we start to see a lot of variation in this prediction market contract price, it does go up and down relative to these events. And that's one of the things that we wanted to answer was whether or not you know, these large political shocks actually translate into real changes in trade flows. So what do you find? So what we find is that there is a meaningful reduction in trade prior to the Brexit referendum relative to changes in this prediction market probability. And it's largest in the products that we think make sense. And those are the products where the MFN tariff that the EU and the UK would likely levy against each other is higher than free trade, which is essentially what they have now. So the products that are most affected are those that have higher tariffs. And on a fairly large fraction of trade between the UK and the EU, 
before or after any kind of a hard Brexit, which may or may not have occurred, tariffs will remain zero. But on a non-trivial share of the products, the, the tariffs are fairly high, and those will reduce you know, sales and demand for firms in both the UK and the EU. Are British exporters selling into Europe affected the same as European exporters selling into the UK? We find that they're not. So the UK exports to the EU are reduced by Brexit uncertainty, but the magnitude of the effect is smaller than for the EU. And one of the reasons that we think that's the case is because if you're you know, a British exporter and you're selling something to the EU, you at least know what the MFN tariff is that you might face in the future, and you've already tailored your product to comply with European Union regulations and customs procedures. Whereas if you're a European Union exporter and you're sending things to the UK, the regulatory environment that you might face after Brexit is is in many cases completely unknown. They could impose tariffs that are higher than the ones that the EU imposes on the UK now. They could change customs regulations, they can, and they could change a num- number of other customs procedures behind the border that impact your, you know, the cost of shipping goods to the UK. And because those are, are more unknown, the EU exporters appear to place you know, greater weight on, on this risk and are affected more negatively. Could it also be that British companies systematically underweight the risk of a hard Brexit relative to European ones? Yes, that could be the case. And one reason for that might be that there was, you know, a great deal of media attention paid to this prior to the vote. And, you know, some people said it would be catastrophic, but there were plenty of other cheerleaders for the process that said this will actually be an improvement, both domestic businesses and exporters. And As an economist, I don't have an ability to tell you whether someone's beliefs were rational or not, but you might be right that perhaps they just had a more positive outlook on the future. How big were these effects? If there's a large, sustained shock in the probability of Brexit, which we're only measuring with this referendum probability, that would, over over the longer term, potentially reduce UK and EU bilateral trade by around 15%, give or take. And we think that's a good number to keep in mind if Brexit uncertainty is sustained and becomes sort of a perpetual Brexit situation, which many people have warned about and may actually be right where we're headed now. 15%, that's big. Yes. Kyle, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on anytime. So both Kyle and Meredith found a negative impact of Brexit uncertainty on trade now. Meredith found it by looking at British companies themselves, and Kyle found it by looking at both UK and EU trade flows. And Kyle found that the fear of British tariffs actually had a bigger effect on European exporters than the fear of European tariffs had on British ones. But he also found that this negative effect of uncertainty wasn't limited to the period after June 23, 2016. The fear of a hard Brexit even before the referendum was having a negative impact on trade. If the uncertainty way back then was having this impact, just imagine what the effect of all this uncertainty now is. If you're a company, are you really going to plan to export to the EU or or export into the UK? Are you really going to be making big investments? I'm skeptical. And I'll just add one final tiny disclaimer. These two economists are top scholars and they've published a lot of research on trade as well as on the economic impact of uncertainty. But these two papers we talked about today are new, and they haven't fully completed the peer review process yet. 
That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Sam Lowe of the Centre for European Reform, Meredith Crowley of the University of Cambridge, and Kyle Handley of the University of Michigan. Thank you to Nick Saffel at the University of Cambridge. Thank you to Colin Warren. Both have helped out with our audio. As always, we'll make sure to tweet out links to these papers, Meredith's papers with Oliver Exton and Lou Han, and Kyle's papers with Nuna Lamau and Alejandro Graziano. And do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to Brexit votes, we're going to have more than one. <laughs>